Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you part one about the deaths of the Powell family. So grab your Americano and let's dive in. I do want to give a little disclaimer for this episode. It does get pretty graphic. I tried to not make it super graphic, but there's a lot of details in it that it makes it a very hard episode. So I just want to give a warning and it does involve a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Susan and Josh Powell met in November of 2000 at a dinner party that Josh had been hosting at his apartment. They were classmates in a religion course and both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the time that the two met, Susan was pursuing her license in cosmetology and living in Washington. The connection that they had was really instant, and six months later, in April of 2001, they got married at the Portland, Oregon Temple. After they got married, Susan and Josh moved a state away and started their life together in Utah. Josh had a bounce between jobs, and Susan was no longer working as a cosmetologist, but she was working as a broker at Wells Fargo. Josh was pursuing his dream to try to become a real estate agent. And Susan wanted to do just about anything to help the man that she loved. And so she dropped all of her dreams, basically, to help him with his dreams. So she got her real estate license as well and started doing all the phone calls and conversations for Josh. Basically, it sounds like she was doing all the like secretarial work for him. Yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like for me as well. Susan's family says that they knew Susan wasn't at all interested in anything related to real estate, but it made her happy to help Josh out. And so that was her main reason for doing it. Family members do say that the constant need that Susan felt to please Josh was really starting to put a strain on the marriage, as I think it would in most cases. A few years later, in 2005, Josh and Susan welcomed their first child, Charlie, into the world. And about two years later, in 2007, they welcomed their second son, Brayden. About how old were they when they met or now? So Susan was about 19 when her and Josh met, and Josh was right around that age. I was having some trouble finding their actual ages other than Wikipedia, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to trust that. Susan was hoping that having these two kids was going to be what her and Josh needed to keep the family together. And it's not always the answer. If there's something going on in the marriage, having kids doesn't always help the situation. Seems like a lot of times having kids could add a lot of extra stress. They recommend that you should wait to have kids until your marriage is at a good point because the kids do add extra stress and you don't get to see your spouse as often. So as we would expect, that didn't work out. So by 2008, things were not going well at all for the Powells. And Josh couldn't keep a job. He was all over the place. And he eventually had to declare bankruptcy, which made their relationship really terrible. On December 6, 2009, Susan went with her two children to church and then afterwards came home to eat some pancakes and eggs for dinner that Josh had made for them. And she'd invited a friend, Jovanna Owings, over to help her untangle a ball of yarn that she was using to crochet a blanket for Charlie. So Jovanna comes over and Josh says, Jovanna, you're welcome to stay for dinner. We're having pancakes and eggs. You can't bring your kids though. Just you. Which 
Seems weird. He said that there wasn't enough food for the kids as well. I mean, God forbid she just has to feed her kids before they come over. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Like, why? I really don't know. He just didn't want the kids there for some reason. Susan went into some details with Giovanna about her and Josh's marriage. She told her that they had started to go to marriage counseling through the church recently, but Josh stopped attending the sessions because he wasn't reading the marriage book that had been assigned to them as homework. So he, from Susan's point of view, Josh had pretty much given up on the marriage at that point in time. On trying to work on it, at least. Not necessarily, in his head, he wasn't looking at divorce. Jovanna does join the family for dinner and says, quote, it was nice because the last time I had been there, he had to dominate the conversation. He had to be at the center of everything. When he came into the room, it was all about Josh, what Josh had to say. This time, it wasn't like that. And I thought that's really nice. So Jovanna thought that their marriage was getting better and that they were learning better ways to communicate. Around 5 p.m., Susan said that she was going to go and lay down for a nap. And Jovanna just kind of assumed that Susan was tired because she had a recent miscarriage and an ear infection that she'd been battling. And so Jovanna stayed until about 5.30, finishing untangling the yarn. Can I just say, I am loving this friend right now. (laughs) It's the sweetest thing that she's over there just to untangle the yarn for her friend. And I love it. It's so sweet. (laughs) I kept giggling when I was doing this part because I was like, that's just so funny. Like, I'm just going to come over and untangle this yarn for you. Yeah, I I probably wouldn't do that for you. Rude. (laughs) Also, though, we don't. Yarn. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to figure out the right. Crochet. Crochet, I think was what I was going to say, but. Yarn is better. (laughs) We don't yarn. (laughs) So around 530, Josh tells Charlie and Brayden to go get ready to go sledding. And so Jovanna says, all right, it's probably my time to leave because Susan's asleep and the rest of the family's about to leave. Later that evening, Josh takes his two kids, Charlie, who's four at this time, and Brayden, who is just a couple years old, to go on a camping trip. The weird thing is they're going on a camping trip in Utah in the middle of December. I was going to say, didn't you say something about sledding just a minute ago? Yeah. So the weather at the time was a high of 21 and a low of 16 in the evening. I assume you mean Fahrenheit? Yes, Fahrenheit. And the morning of December 7th, so when they would have been done camping, it was a high of 21 and a low of 18. So you're looking at about 16 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit just hanging out outside camping. Do they have an RV? Nope. So really not ideal conditions to have your young children in. Mm Mm-hmm approximately 12 30 in the morning is when josh said that he loaded the boys into the minivan and took them camping so they left around 12 30 a.m to go camping also a strange time i just want to clarify everything so he takes them camping at the simpson springs campground which is about 25 miles west of vernon in the remote west desert of tool county is how it was described did they have to like check in somewhere where the camp sites even open can this be verified they just went camping there's (laughs) not a whole lot on it i mean i know around here the campgrounds aren't even open from like during the winter and cold season so i was just kind of wondering where exactly they ended up simpson springs campground that's where they ended up i i got nothing and he had said that susan was asleep at home she was still tired the morning after Charlie and Brayden did not get dropped off at daycare and Susan didn't show up for work. And so this caused some concern. 
Oh, yeah. What day of the week was this? So the 6th was a Sunday, and so the 7th would have been Monday, which is when no one showed up for work or for drop-off. So the daycare got really concerned, and so they called Josh's family to see if they'd heard from anybody or what was going on. And Josh's family tried to get a hold of Susan or Josh, and they couldn't get a hold of them. So they got concerned, and they called 911 to report the family missing. The police went to the home of Josh and Susan Powell, and when they got there, nobody was home. So they went inside and found two large fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet, which was a little odd. But that was all that they could find. They didn't find any of the family members. They were finally able to get a hold of Josh that evening, and first it was friends that had got a hold of Josh and told him that police were waiting for him at his house. When he got home, they did further investigations of the house. And so when they got him, they seized his van, rental car, and his new cell phone that he just activated 80 miles north of Salt Lake City. Why did he have a rental car? I have no idea. I don't know if they just needed an extra vehicle at that time or what it was. Police further investigated and they found a trace of Susan's blood, her purse, and wallet along with her ID. And then they found her phone in Josh's van. Police then took Josh to the police station so that they could question him. And he gave this story about the spontaneous camping trip, but it wasn't even a great story, apparently. And he seemed really nervous, and he kind of gave some suspicion for the officers. And while they had found Josh, Charlie, and Brayden, they still didn't know where Susan was. And Josh was saying that he didn't know where she was either. And police weren't really buying that. So about a week after everything happened, Josh becomes the primary suspect in his wife's disappearance. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. I'm going to kind of go into the main reasons for this, and then I'm going to go into Josh's background to kind of give you guys a better idea of who he is. So the reasonings that they really thought that he had something to do with it was the fact that they found her cell phone in his car that he had taken, which seemed weird to them. And police said that Josh didn't even seem to be concerned about Susan at all or the fact that she was missing. He seemed really nonchalant about it and wasn't super concerned or acting the way that the police thought that somebody whose wife was missing should be acting. There was also a journal of Susan's that was found after she disappeared, and there were journal entries that kind of made them suspicious as well. So there was one from June of 2008, so it was about a year and a half prior to her disappearance, and she wrote that she didn't trust her husband, and then a entry later on, she wrote... I've been having extreme marital stress for three to four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail. He has threatened to skip the country and told me if we divorce, there will be lawyers. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. A little suspicious. I think it's definitely suspicious and odd if you're thinking that your husband's going to kill you. Yeah, that's not normal. (laughs) 
You know, you don't just casually like, oh, we're just having marital problems. I think he might kill me. I don't know. Like, no, that's like a serious accusation. There was something else going on behind the scenes that we're not knowing about for her to feel unsafe in her home. Were there any other like domestic disturbances before this? Nothing that had been reported. Family members did talk about how their marriage was not the greatest, which I'll go into further in a minute. There were a few other odd things that she did to try to protect herself and her children. She took a video of her walking around the house and in the video, she posted it to Facebook. And in the video, she says, if something happens to me or my family or all of us, this is so that our assets are documented. I think it's always good to be prepared in case something were to happen but i think there's a difference between preparation and like preparation for the unknown and preparation for what you believe could be happening right i mean like i just said you don't just do something like that out of nowhere so josh continued to maintain his innocence and he even created a website called susanpowell.org so he could share his thoughts about his missing wife and support people's claims that she was still alive This website no longer exists, but him and his father was actually a helping hand in creating this website. It's kind of what I was going to ask next. I know police obviously think he's a primary suspect and is involved. Is Susan's family reaching out thinking he's involved, her friends and stuff? Or did he have people advocating for him? Sounds like maybe his father. So his family was advocating for him, kind of, but nothing from her family that I found. At this point, the police started to question Josh, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge him. Now I'm going to go into his background. So Josh's parents, Stephen and Terika Powell, had a really up and down marriage as well. And theirs ended in 1992. Terika said that Stephen was a harsh disciplinarian who constantly direct attacks at Josh. And this had a major effect on Josh, which is understandable, but he struggled with it and tried to hang himself when he was a teenager. Steven and Terika disagreed over everything, including parenting, religion, and just about everything in life. Steven accused his wife at one point in time that she had adopted a new age mysticism combined with Mormonism. So intense that he thought that she was practicing witchcraft and devil worship and that she had strayed away from the LDS church. And obviously, Terika didn't enjoy that accusation. Terika talked about how Steve was actually addicted to pornography. And not only did he suffer from the addiction, but he kind of pushed it onto his sons. So he would show his sons pornographic images when they were kids. Ew. Yeah, that's just, I mean, kind of scraping the surface with this man. Terika also said that Stephen was verbally abusive and physically abusive towards his children. So Josh Powell didn't really have a great father figure to look up to. Or a great childhood, sounds like. No, not really. Because of everything that was going on and because of the childhood that he was growing up in and what his examples were, he started to make not great decisions. So he once threatened his mother with a butcher knife because she asked him to do the dishes. I don't like doing the dishes either, but that's a step too far. Doing the dishes is so much better than doing the laundry, though. I'd rather do the laundry. Now, if I get asked to do the laundry, hands might get thrown. Josh's father, Stephen, also had a really negative view of women in general. And Josh kind of adopted that viewpoint. 
And he ended up killing his sister's pet gerbil at some point as a child. I, I don't know the backstory of that. I couldn't find it. But he must have been upset where he just snapped. When his mom and dad split up, Josh and his three brothers ended up in his father's custody. And his sister went to live with their mother. But eventually, she ended up moving in with their father as well. So eventually, he had custody of all five kids. I wonder how that happened. I honestly don't know. I don't know if it was something that they just didn't look into enough. Or she just didn't want custody of them because i mean typically even when you're not looking into it the kids tend to end up with the mom it's just kind of naturally how it goes obviously there's different situations and that's not i'm sure it's a little different the more we progress in time but i know at least like just as far as like 90s and stuff it was a lot harder for a father to gain custody just for the simple fact that he was the father I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily the right way to do things, but it is interesting in this situation specifically that he ended up with custody of all of them when he clearly has some issues and maybe isn't the best parent. I don't know that I would clarify him as a great parent, correct? No, probably a pretty crappy one. At some point in time, I don't know exactly what happened, but probably some of the things that we were talking about, Stephen's parents ended up getting custody of the children. And so they lived with them for about a year, and then they returned back to living with their mother. So they were kind of moving around a lot. But when they were living with Stephen and then their grandparents, they were told that they would never see their mother again. And so by the time they went to live with her, they were all super traumatized. And Stephen, at some point in time, I don't have an exact timeline. These are just things that happened. This was after their divorce, though. Stephen started to develop these extremist views and kind of separated himself from the LDS church. And he once told Terika that he had the, quote, right to take another person's wife. And he had his sights already set on a woman who was currently married but he thought that that was his right to have her and so he wrote his journal his sexual fantasies about this woman this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in shopify's there to help you grow Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And with everything going on, Josh wasn't handling it well, as I'm sure most of the kids weren't, because this is a lot. And Terika said that Josh was withdrawn and unwilling to interact or even make eye contact. And that went on for about a year or two. So that's really all about the background I have regarding Josh. So I'm going to go kind of fast forward again to the story that is currently happening with Susan missing and Josh having Charlie and Brayden with him. I was just going to ask that with him being a primary suspect, the children are still in his custody, though. They were at first, but they end up they do end up getting taken away later on. Okay. Police question Josh and now they're going to question the kids and Charlie's the older son. So he is going to have a little bit more of a memory about everything. And he tells police that they did go on a camping trip. 
And Abby, this is going to answer your question. The police did go to the place where the Powells had supposedly been camping, but they couldn't find any evidence that they had been there because of the snow. So I'm assuming there was no sort of check-in process at this place that they went because from what it sounded like, there the only thing that they had to look at was the snow. Yeah, I, I would guess that it wouldn't even be open during this time of year. A few reports came in from neighbors about the night that Susan went missing and one neighbor said that he saw Josh return with the boys around 8 30 that night that would have been from their sledding trip that they had gone on and then another neighbor Marco Bastidas so this was three hours later he was one house away from the Powells and he was locking up his car when he heard an alarm sound from inside the closed garage from the Powells And he said the house was really dark and the alarm just kept going on and on and on. And Marco's sister suggested that he told other neighbors, but Marco didn't want to bother anybody because it was really late at night. And so he just kind of went back inside and eventually the alarm shut off. There was also another neighbor that came forward and said that she heard a man and a woman arguing that night from inside the Powell home. And she ended up telling police that she regretted not getting up and looking out the window to make sure everything was okay. But I don't think that you could put that on yourself because I think if a husband and wife are arguing, it's probably one of those situations where you're like, I don't want to be a part of that, you know? Yeah, I don't think she should feel any fault for that. But, you know, how many times have you been somewhere and heard people arguing? Unless you're like seeing something physical, it seems like you don't really interject often. It's kind of along the lines of the bystander effect almost because you don't know what's happening so you don't want to jump in and just assume that something bad is happening so at this point i mean all of the information about susan missing is out to the public everybody knows that she's missing and everybody's just slowly starting to come forward with information that they have about her there was a co-worker actually of stephen powell who told police that stephen had told her that he had gone on the camping trip with the Powell family that night. And he said that they sat around a campfire, roasted marshmallows, and threw snowballs. Which seems like such an odd combination to me to go camping to be throwing snow at each other. There was also a woman that came forward, and her name was Denise. And she was an employee at a local Flying J gas station. And she said that on the night that Susan disappeared, a minivan pulled up in the parking lot of the gas station. And the entire family came into the gas station entire family as in also a mom yes so it was josh susan charlie and brayden all came in and she said that she remembered that family specifically because it was such bad weather apparently it was a really bad storm that night and she thought that they looked really out of place she said that a man walked in holding a toddler and was chasing after another boy calling out hey charlie So that kind of puts, in theory, Charlie there. Then she described the man as someone who was wearing a leather jacket with dark hair and a goatee. And that would describe Josh Powell. Then the woman, she said, looked well put together for someone who was about to go camping. But she said that she had red rings around her eyes as if she'd been crying. And the family bought rescue tape, crackers, and licorice. And then... At one point in time, one of the kids was like waiting by the door and the man, aka Josh, said, hang on a minute, let me buy this and then we'll go camping. So obviously at that point in time, 
Denise didn't know what was going on. She didn't know anything about the family. And it was actually a few weeks later before she even realized that it was the family that of the woman that was missing. And so she came forward as soon as she recognized her. I'm surprised she remembered that encounter with so much detail. Well, she said that it was just one that really stuck out to her because it was such an odd thing for that family to be there. They did try to look at the security tape, but it had been a few weeks since it had happened. And so the security footage had already recorded over itself and that footage was gone. And the family also paid in cash. There was no way to ensure that they were the ones that were actually there. So that account from Denise was actually the last time that Susan had ever been seen by anybody outside of the family. Stay tuned for our next episode where Erica tells us the rest of the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.